the idea that uh, Jamal, someone who is a 60-year-old man, um, wore glasses, um, anybody who knew him in life is just a very kind, gentle man, that he would have died in a, a fight um, against 15 men. No, that was not a fight. That is, if anything, if we're going to give any credence to this, it's a uh, setup and um, an ambush. <laughs> But I think we can see where this is headed. Ultimately, the president is going to accept the crown prince's denials. Uh, but it's hard for me to imagine that uh, these orders would have been carried out without the knowledge of the crown prince. Just hope that it all works out. We have a lot of facts. We have a lot of things that we've been looking at. Uh, they haven't betrayed me. I mean, maybe they betrayed themselves. We'll have to see how it all turns out. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So there's an election tomorrow and it's really the only shot at getting some checks and balances on the president, marshalling the body politics immune system to arrest the rampaging devastation of our democracy. Barry Weiss of The New York Times and Benjamin Wittes of Lawfare, hardly lefties, both said this week that in Weiss's words, no policy by Republicans is worth the price of selling out our values. She lists these values, and I concur, as dignity for all human beings, equality under the law, respect for dissent, love of truth. And these are the things we risk losing under this president. For this reason, in Wittes's words, the Republicans must be boycotted. So vote tomorrow and don't vote against your conscience, your democracy, and your country. Wittes said recently that punishing the Republican Party for several election cycles up and down the ballot in a fashion that will reverberate for decades is the single most important thing you can do to protect democracy. And I'd add that those who throw in with the party that has encouraged massacres of people in their places of worship and women in their places of leisure, as well as political foes and journalists, should own it. They're throwing in with brown shirtism and fascism and even civil war, and that blood will be on their hands. I'm going to quote one more person. He's running for governor in Florida. That's Andrew Gillum. He says, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm not saying the Republicans are racists. I'm saying the racists believe they're racists. Today's show is about another authoritarian regime parallel and allied with our own, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And in particular, it's about what's happening in the investigation of the clearly state-sponsored torture and murder of the Washington Post journalist and American resident Jamal Khashoggi. I'm Americanizing the pronunciation out of ignorance, but fortunately my guest, Arabic speaker Adam Kugel, does not. Adam Kugel is a Middle East researcher at Human Rights Watch, which he joined in 2010. He's written extensively based on his investigations into human rights abuses in the region. He was a Fulbright Fellow in Jordan during 2005 and 2006, conducting research. He's joining me on the line from Amman, Jordan, to speak about Khashoggi and Saudi Arabia and Trump. Adam, welcome to Trumpcast. Thank you for having me. So the name Trump is in the title of the podcast, and the reason we're talking today about Jamal Khashoggi's torture and murder in relation to Trump is that, of course, the Trumps, and especially his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, have close relations with the Saudi government. And um, we've seen some versions of what look like, well, state-sponsored harassment of journalists here, state-incited harassment of and even of journalists and even some brown shirt attacks on CNN. You've probably seen 
seen some of this. So this seems to be a global scourge, at least among the autocrats and aspiring autocrats in uh, Russia, in certainly Saudi Arabia, and, and increasingly in the United States. So with that background, to connect this to the topic of our podcast, tell us the latest news about Khashoggi, the journalist um, tortured and, and murdered last month in the Saudi Arabian embassy in Istanbul. Yeah, absolutely. So we did see today the BBC reported that a Turkish official told them Saudi Arabia essentially sent experts to cover up the evidence of Khashoggi's murder in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. In addition, two of uh, Khashoggi's sons did a a sit-down interview with CNN last night in which they appealed for the return of Khashoggi's body so that they could go and bury him in their hometown of Medina. So they, um, even though he wrote for the Washington Post and has been in in many ways claimed as an American resident, and certainly Americans are deeply concerned about this case, his sons consider him or, or want to lay him to rest in Medina. Tell me the thinking there. Well, to be honest with you, I'm not sure exactly what conversations are going on between the children of Khashoggi. I think there are four or five of them. I think actually four, sorry. I do know that until just very recently, the oldest son, Salah, was living in Saudi Arabia. And in fact, you may have seen he was sort of forced about two weeks ago to go to Riyadh and allow Mohammed bin Salman to express his condolences for his father's murder. And of course, that was taken and presented everywhere as a, as a photo op opportunity. I'm not sure there's some speculation that that was his price for being able to get out of the country, which he did about one or two days later uh, after that picture was taken. Um, mm-hmm. But certainly it, you do wonder what the discussions are and, you know, how far the, Khashoggi, the family of Khashoggi wants to take this. Look, I'm sure they're outraged over their father's death. I don't want to speak for them. But at the same time, you know, I, I, I'm sure that there also could be some reticence about being thrust into the position of being sort of almost like opposition activists. There's some parallels here between what happened, well, what's happening with the sons and Mohammed bin Salman, and then what's happening with loved ones of Jews killed in synagogue in Pittsburgh. Whether the victims have an obligation to participate in the kabuki of the governments that, you know, either seemingly directly participated in in these murders or at least incited it or tolerated it or turned a blind eye to, in the U.S., a certain kind of domestic terrorism. Why? You know, people ask us about Pittsburgh. Most people refuse to greet the president in Pittsburgh. But why do people come around to it? And why do Hashogshi's sons, are these deals with the with the government? You know, you sort of spelled out, you don't think the sons necessarily want to be government critics or uh, put themselves in danger as long as they're tied to Medina and Saudi Arabia. But I still feel like it's an opportunity to for them to continue their father's legacy of criticism of the government. Well, um, just to answer the first point of that, look, I don't think um, it's I don't think it's very easy for us to know what the conversations are going on. Yeah. Consist of between the Khashoggi sons right now. I mean, it could just be that they feel a very religious prerogative to ensure mm. a proper barrel for, for their father and then they'll mm-hmm. move from there to other questions. I mean, that could mm-hmm. be the case. It's also, look, I, I think only one of his sons, Salah, the oldest, was actually living in Saudi Arabia at the time of, of Khashoggi's death. Uh-huh. Um, but it, And it could just be that, you know, they're not quite ready to give up on, you know, li- living there. I mean, he 
probably has investments. He probably has some sort of work or business. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's not very easy to sort of just jump into, you know, this life as an exile, right? Mm -hmm. If you have the option of not doing that, maybe you would think about it. I, I don't know. I'm just trying to sort of give possible explanations here. In addition, I think you mentioned his father's legacy of criticism. Interestingly enough, I mean, I would kind of argue that that's actually not exactly the case. I mean, he, he ah. did criticize the state during his last, the last year of his life mm -hmm. uh, after he was exiled. But previous to that, he was very much what you would view as an institutional reformist, uh, very frankly yeah. defensive of the royal family and what he viewed as reformist elements within the royal family. He wasn't I don't think he ever defined himself as an opposition person. And mm -hmm. so that I think that's an important sort of aspect of this when you look at sort of his sons and what they're discussing. I mean, it's not as though, you know, his father had been viewed as this major Saudi dissident, except for over the last year. And it's hard to know what they thought about that. I mean, previous to that, I remember some activists online showing pictures of Jamal with MBS at some of the launch events for his big vision vision 2030 plan he, he launched uh two years ago uh, ah. in 2016 and and there was you know sort of a, a select group of saudi journalists that were invited to sort of some special events and there were some photographs and jamal was one of them <laughs> so yeah. it's just interesting to see that and then where things ended up just just two short years later um, i mean that's that's a really important insight and requires some reframing because we've I think in the U.S. imagined that Hashokchi is more like Vladimir Karamorza or one of the other Russian dissidents. And it sounds like he might be more like a CNN, as you say, critical from the inside or, or you know, a sort of moderate or like at least not a self-identified dissident. Is that right? I don't think he ever wanted to be a dissident. I think what happened was the repression level got so bad that even within the already restricted space he had learned to operate in as a Saudi journalist and yeah. as a, someone who was capable of, of independent thought. <laughs> yeah. know, he, had, he had gotten very used to operating within that frame of reference. And, and frankly, he had worked for many publications. He had been sacked by some publications for what he had mm -hmm. written. He had been stopped from writing before. So it's not like he never pushed up against the red lines. Yeah. However, he always felt like he could stay in the country and do his work. And I don't think he was all that scared of being arrested until – MBS really escalated the repression. And that really started in around September of 2017. So for about a year now, the amount of arrests, the amount of threats and intimidation is so overwhelming that I think that Jamal probably felt he had an obligation to call attention to it. And he, of course, he fled the country himself. Uh, yes. and, he, and, there, and there's no doubt in my mind, he would have been among those rounded up as well. Because MBS basically was going after anybody, not only that you know, had per perhaps criticized him, but anyone who could perhaps think independently and criticize him in the future, I think. Why is such moderate criticism such a threat to MBS? I mean, there have been much sterner critics of the kingdom than Khashoggi. And this is such a violent, anyway, he doesn't represent, seem to represent the threat that, say, Vladimir Karamorza represented to the Kremlin. But why put all these resources, and we're going to get to the toxicologist and, and chemist in a second, why put all these resources onto this particular murder? Look, in terms of MBS and his lack of tolerance, so to speak, for criticism, I think it kind of goes back to the Faustian bargain that he hmm. embraced when he made a run for becoming the ruler of Saudi Arabia a couple of years ago. Yes. And that is 
basically that the country is in dire economic straits, that the price of oil, if it stayed low, would really bankrupt the Saudi economy. They wouldn't be able to pay their bills. And it really required something that the Saudi state has known for many, many years it needed to do, which was diversify and completely mm-hmm. overhaul its its economy. To, I guess, sort of help some of that along, I think MBS knew that he needed direct investment, especially Western investment. And because of that, he introduced some of the very limited social reforms to make it you know, appear as though the country is modernizing and that Saudi Arabia mm-hmm. you know, isn't some sort of backward monarchy that you might sort of think that it is based on you know, the news stories over many years. Given that he felt like he needed to overhaul everything and that this would be a very, very difficult challenge, he sort of believed he needed absolute power. And he believed that allowing any space for free expression, free thought could potentially harm his absolutely essential reform effort in his own mind. Right. Do you, yep. So he's it's, saving his country. If he's saving his country, anything is justified. And he basically mm. said that in an interview with Bloomberg a couple of weeks ago where he said, you know, we've had to arrest 1500 people. But, you know, it's sort of a small price to pay for essentially fixing the country. <laughs> I wonder if you think that the the stateside media was a handmaiden in this at all when, you know, we had front page stories talking about how dashing MBS is and how what he was doing in, in what confining some of his enemies in the Ritz Carlton or something. I, it sort of reminded me of Putin's rounding up some of his competition oligarchs. But anyway, in, you know, I remember the New York Times called this a crackdown on corruption, which seems to be the, the same way that MBS is selling it now. There are these corrupt elements. Maybe he saw Khashoggi as one of them. Yeah. So, so uh, look, I think it was very hard for us doing human rights work, trying to call attention to abuses. It was very challenging to see the MBS victory tour, if you will, in the U.S. Yeah. and all of the people posing for photos with him and celebrating him. I don't want to criticize his economic plans. I mean, I, I don't necessarily think, you know, uh, I think there's questions as to whether he can deliver on them. Uh, however, I don't think that they're necessarily bad. And as a human rights person, I, I, I frankly res- reserve judgment on that anyway. However, it was very unfortunate that people completely looked the other way on the human rights abuses, which by that point had really escalated, mm-hmm. um, not just the domestic crackdown in Saudi Arabia, but also the war in Yemen, which has killed thousands, has really exacerbated a horrible humanitarian situation and led many Yemenis to the brink of starvation and famine. And the, co- the Saudi-led coalition is directly responsible for much of that. And the fact that that really just wasn't part of the equation, while Mohammed bin Salman himself is the defense minister and is seen as the the quote unquote, uh, leader and face of that war. The fact that MBS had, you know, ha- had done what he'd done with Saad Hariri and the, the very strange blockade of Qatar, you know, all these very kind of erratic yes. acts that didn't really make any sense, didn't really benefit anybody, exposed a lot of, you know, Saudi hypocrisy, frankly, criticizing Qatar the way, you know, for funding terrorism and whatnot. All of that had already happened by the time he went to the US. So for us, it was a very challenging thing to, to see that and to try to, it's not necessarily like, you know, we, we don't necessarily want to tell people they, they shouldn't invest in Saudi Arabia or they shouldn't support Saudi or Saudi economic reforms, which probably are essential for the Saudi people long term. However, you can't just sort of ignore the abuses and the very extreme escalation of oppression that had already happened by that point. And unfortunately, I guess as, as Human Rights Watch and as human rights organizations, we had, you know, despite screaming from the rooftops, perhaps failed to call attention to a lot of that until the Khashoggi affair, which really kind of crystallized and 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 kind of 
became a symbol for all of that over the last month. It is extraordinarily interesting that in the U.S., it's a little different in England, but in the U.S., the Yemen conflict, the starvation and the numbers of of fatalities is up to 56,000 as of a couple days ago. Apparently, the number was misreported or, you know, at a fifth of that, a 10,000. And unlike Syria, where there was at least some stateside interest in it, Yemen has gone largely unremarked. And that, yeah. and then somehow his death called attention to MBS's other actions aside from preening for the cameras with, with Jared Kushner. So, as you know, this whole thing is ripe for conspiracy and thinking. And and one of the things that American journalists have zeroed in on is, you know, Kushner's having been denied this Qatari loan that he wanted. And then the, suddenly the blockade set up by his buddy in, in Saudi Arabia. I want to return to, you know, you use this word hypocrisy to describe Saudi's sudden condemnation of Qatar. Then there's a very similar thing that's happened with Erdogan in Turkey suddenly getting on his high horse. I mean, it's pretty rich that Erdogan, who's imprisoned many journalists in Turkey, the journalists I know are are mostly banned from Turkey. Even he's banned academics. He's banned all kinds of civilians who, who don't have a lot of say in it, intellectuals and so forth. But what do you make of, is Turkey's information, what is Turkey up to playing the chief critic of Saudi Arabia here and even the chief supplier of the information that we're using even in this conversation? about what happened in that room? Look, the, the role that Erdogan and Turkey have played have been a total mystery to me as it began, as it's gone on, and even till now. I'm not sure what their goal is or, or, or exactly what they're playing at. Obviously, they're trying to portray themselves as, you know, uh, uh, looking to get to the bottom of it, finding the truth, you know, holding people accountable for a grisly murder, Obviously, Saudi Arabia absolutely violated the Vienna Conventions uh, mm-hmm. by using their consulate to commit a crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, so holding Saudi Arabia accountable for that. However, as you note, uh, <laughs> it's not as though the Erdogan regime is particularly friendly towards journalists and they have mm-hmm. locked up many. In fact, Turkey has been the you know worldwide the largest jur- jailer of journalists for many years. You know, they've also embarked on a pretty, uh, you know, widespread domestic crackdown since the failed coup attempt a couple of years ago. Many, many people have been sacked and arrested and, 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 and so on and so forth. So it's not as though, you know, he's standing up for human rights principles in general as a, as a principled stand. So given that, you know, we're left to wonder what's he playing at. So people have surmised that maybe he's trying to wiggle some economic concessions out of the Saudis, right? Because the mm-hmm. Turkish economy yes. is in pretty dire straits. What that would look like, I have no idea. However, you know, that's sort of, you know, Saudi Arabia has their their big investment fund. Maybe Erdogan's trying to get some investment. Perhaps he wants Saudi Arabia to make peace with Qatar. I don't know. You know, that mm. obviously Tur- Turkey is a is a Qatar ally. So it's it's difficult to say for sure for me and for some of my colleagues, we've sort of been sitting watching this thing, waiting for Erdogan to make a deal and then to, you know, basically stop hearing any more news about the Khashoggi affair, right? Yep. Uh, but that hasn't but that hasn't happened. And now it looks as though Turkey and Saudi Arabia are parties starting to publicly disagree about the mm-hmm. situation. I think a couple of days ago you you saw you know Turkish officials start to say Saudi Arabia is not cooperating, saying that you know the Saudi attorney general visited Istanbul but you know didn't didn't answer their questions and reveal the uh, identity of this quote unquote 
Turkish collaborator who supposedly disposed of the body. Of course, now mm-hmm. there's other accounts that say that might not even be true. It's it's kind of a mystery. I, I really don't understand what the Turkish intentions are here. It's pretty hard for those of us who cover human rights issues to imagine that Turkey's sort of just standing up on the principle of the thing mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. to do the right thing. However, it could also be, frankly, that maybe they feel, the Turkish officials feel that the story has become so much bigger than something that they could control in that way, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe perhaps cutting a deal with Saudi Arabia and backing down now would could look bad for Erdogan, uh, especially given that he has generated a lot of domestic support and popularity, frankly, for his for his role in this. Uh-huh. Um, so that could be that could be a partial answer, but I'm not uh, not totally sure. Is that is it possible also that he's playing the West and not just Saudi Arabia? So getting kudos from the European and American media. And also, we've been uncritically accepting his description of things or the Turkish description of things. It's always according to Turkish officials. I mean, is there a way we're getting it wrong? And also, what does he want from us? I mean, I can I starting to imagine what he could want from Saudi Arabia, getting leverage over them. But what might he want from the West, Erdogan? Well, he certainly wants to improve relations with the U.S. And, and that was obviously made clear when he released that pastor um, yes. a, a couple of weeks ago. So that, I mean, people have theorized that that could also be part of this sort of a big kind of deal with the U.S. and with Saudi Arabia. And I'm sure I have no doubt that there are pretty fierce diplomatic discussions that are going on on all sides of this. But until now, you know, Turkey has not completely stopped criticizing Saudi Arabia, which makes me think either number one a deal hasn't been struck mm-hmm. or for whatever reason the turks are no longer pursuing a deal of course may have something going with the u.s I, i'm not exactly sure obviously i think people are aware that the trump administration has quite a lot invested in mbs himself mm-hmm. and they obviously clearly by their actions do not want to see him go they may want him to make some symbolic gestures and be chastened a little bit but they certainly don't want him to go and if Erdogan has more evidence that could p- perhaps reveal some sort of uh, role by MBS in this affair, I think that that would be a pretty strong bargaining position <laughs> for him. Well, we have something because we have there's CCT footage of this would be cleanup crew coming into the consulate right after Jamal's murder. This looks like not speculation to me when I look at even though. The details of the cleanup come from senior Turkish officials, but there are photographs of identifiable figures going into the consulate soon after the murder. So I guess these days, instead of calling people who come to clean up blood, soft tissue, missing fingers after a a horrifying dismemberment, they're no longer just called thugs. They're called toxicologists and chemical experts. What do you make of this news that that a full cover up? I mean, we it sounds like there was a like there was a hose down of this place that MBS thought that this whole thing could be made to go away. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure what to make of that. I, I do remember um, as soon as the um, the Saudis announced that they were going to started investigation in the early days of, uh, you know, after October 2nd, you know, to figure out what happened to Jamal. 
and they were still denying that he had been killed in the embassy. I, I do remember right in front of the media, a huge cleanup crew did look like it was going in yeah. <laughs> to the embassy with washers and everything at that time. Of course, this is different. This seems to be, you know, this idea that a cleanup crew uh, was part of the team, the assassination team that mm-hmm. appears to have gone in and murdered him. Look, I guess, I, I don't know. I guess that they, you know, they felt like they would truly be able to hide this thing. They obviously didn't do a very good job. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Turkish officials that went in, you know, said that things had been painted over very obviously. Maybe they thought that, you know, they could just clean it up a little bit inside the consulate, make sure with their forensics experts there that they didn't leave a trace of DNA or anything. And then they would always have plausible deniability, even if it looked bad. Right. And I guess yeah. maybe that's I guess that's I guess that could be what it is. But of course, there's also this new rumor that, you know, they they they, they disposed of his body by burning it in acid. I don't know where that would have happened or how that could have happened, but that's certainly something that's been suggested now as well. I, I don't know, you know, this isn't this is like you know the third or fourth different um, uh, explanation of of Jamal's fate. So it's really hard to say for sure if that's true or not. I don't know. Um, so Karen Ataya here, his editor at the Washington Post, and also his sons want to see the body. I mean, it, it's a, that literal habeas corpus. Show us and. Yeah. That does not seem forthcoming. I mean, for one, the body sounds like by all description that it's remains and not an intact body. You know, the hesitation about uh, on that just seems unforgivable. I mean, there's so much. This thing is so overdetermined, the lies around it and so forth. Yeah. Um, well, it's one. Of, it's really one of the, the major things that Saudi Arabia has not answered that they need to answer. What happened to his body? They know what happened, yeah. obviously. They just need to reveal it. And they hadn't done so. And it's yeah. one of the ways in which Saudi Arabia has continued this game of obfuscation. I mean, yeah. they knew it, they knew immediately what had happened when they were denying that he would, had been killed and that he had left the embassy after 20 minutes. And that we know he left, but the cameras weren't recording. I mean, the, 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 the lies and the obfuscations, I mean, they're really pathetically bad, easily disproven lies. I mean, were rolled out there, even though it was sort of laughable because the Turks had already released information that threw those explanations into complete doubt, right? And the yeah. fact that they continue to roll them out there shows just almost as though they they don't even care if people think they're telling the truth or not. And frankly, this this plays right into it. The fact that they failed to reveal what happened to his body shows that Saudi Arabia isn't interested in getting to the bottom of this. In my view, they're interested in, in trying to cover over this thing as much as possible, perhaps have a few people demote although whether they're actually fired and demoted is, is quite a matter of debate and perhaps do a symbolic arrest or trial of or frankly even a real trial of some of the individuals who carried it out and then try to forget the thing and move on without any of it touching MBS. So that that's that's what the Saudis are interested in doing and the fact that they haven't revealed what happened to his body I think is just sort of part of that effort. So we sort of talked about a material cover-up and a and a kind of a, a, all the shifting alibis in the beginning that he may have disappeared or that he exited the consulate, which we now know to be patently false. But there's this kind of, and this is where I think Human Rights Watch comes in, there's this sort of, I don't know how to think about it, like a tertiary cover-up that happens when the leaders, and we have seen this with Trump, have to kind of condemn the murder and show their own indignation over the murder and try to catch the real killer and then pose for photos with some of the victims. I mean, this seems to be to this seems to be the way of cheating out to the international community, to the human rights observers that, you know, we've got this in hand and 
It just has that, uh, you know, now what, I don't know, maybe 30-year-old move of the state pretending to condemn the terrorist cell responsible for something well, while also turning a blind eye and sponsoring it. Yeah, well, in the in the case of the Trump administration, I'm not even so sure that they actually pretended to condemn it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in my yes. point of view, I, it sounds like they condemned the plan as being a bad plan, <laughs> right? Yes. I don't, it, it doesn't appear as Trump made a moral judgment as to whether that the assassination of a journalist was bad or not. Yes. But yes. rather he said it was a, a flawed concept, I think, yeah. and carried out. And then it was the worst cover up, quote unquote, ever, mm-hmm. <laughs> which, mm-hmm. which, which may all well be true. But it lacks any sort of moral judgment about the fact that Saudi Arabia executed one of its own citizens inside a consulate well, in, he's, in another country, it, you know. It may be the worst cover-up ever, but Trump is giving it a nice assist by trying to trying to whitewash it as some kind of yeah. Keystone Cops adventure as opposed to a grave, grave human rights abuse that we're seeing on the rise. It's really just, it's such a, the show's producer, A.C. Valdez, said, this is a really hard show to do. And I like I commend, you know, the fact that you stick with it in Jordan during a very like a, a time where sometimes the world seems like it's in flames. Here, the, the, here's the reality of the situation from our point of view. You know, we've been pushing for positive changes in Saudi Arabia for many years. You know, and, and my job at Human Rights Watch is to is to take the lead on that and to, and to cover Saudi Arabia and to really see what we can do to push things forward, uh, especially within the public debate. We've seen in years past that the, the one thing the Saudis will listen to and the one thing that will cause positive momentum is if the U.S. administration gets behind a human rights agenda and mm-hmm. really pushes the Saudis. Into, we saw it most especially after 9-11 when mm-hmm. the Bush administration really, frankly, bullied the Saudis into mm-hmm. making some pretty fundamental changes, including to their their school curriculum, which is still ongoing, by the way, but the fact that he got them to address it at all was a, was a big deal, as well as cleaning up a lot of the terrorism financing and whatnot. So we well, know that the U.S. plays a major role when it comes to pushing things forward in Saudi Arabia, and it could now today do the same. But frankly, given what we've seen from the administration, uh, I'm not entirely optimistic about it. I mean, the fact that Mike Pompeo you know, says that they may, you know, institute some uh, sanctions on some of the individuals involved, mm-hmm. uh, but they're, quote unquote, going to wait a few weeks to see how the Saudi investigation turns out. You know, giving the Saudi investigation any credibility whatsoever, frankly, is tantamount to uh, a signal that they're probably negotiating with the Saudis under the table to figure out how they can sort of address this most minimally and put in a few symbolic sanctions or actions against the Saudis and then declare that they've, you know, provided accountability while actually doing the opposite. All roads lead to the same one word imperative, which is Tuesday. We all need to vote because this this president needs some checks and balances. And and the Congress has proven it sometimes to be amenable to sanctions, Magnitsky sanctions, notably, and also and sanctions on Russia generally. Thank you so much for being here, Adam. And thanks for your good work. Thank you. That's it for today's show. If Trumpcast is keeping you sane and informed, think about visiting slate.com slash Trumpcast plus and signing up for a membership. It really helps us and the political gab fest, slow burn, what next and waves keep going. That's slate.com slash Trumpcast plus. And if you really are committed to Slate podcasts and you happen to be near Brooklyn, come out on Thursday to the Polanski Shakespeare Center for a midterm election recap. 
featuring Trumpcast's own Jamel Bowie. Our show today was produced by A.C. Valdez with help from Shirley Chan and Melissa Kaplan. And I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.